millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those, those, those boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. All my debit here in Dublin. Ken Early is in Berlin. Ken, how are you? Very good, Owen. I must say it's a beautiful, beautiful morning in Berlin here. Not a cloud in the summer sky. And everyone very much looking forward to the uh, 2015 Champions League final. Indeed, they are. We have a Champions League final to look forward to Ireland against England on Sunday and uh, lording it over everything, the FIFA corruption story, which <laughs> refuses to go more than half an hour without something interesting happening. Let's kick straight into your report on sport, Ken. I think you might want to start with a bit of UEFA FIFA. Well, obviously, uh, UEFA are all going to be here um, for the Champions League final. Now, they, did, they had planned to have a big uh, formal meeting uh, you remember Michel Platini talking about this last week, um, where they were going to discuss, uh, you know, their response to sort of the re-election of Sepp Blatter and everything that was going on. But of course, things have sort of changed since then because Sepp Blatter's announced that he's resigning. So apparently, this meeting uh, has been cancelled or postponed, uh, and instead, UEFA are kind of casting about trying to find um, who is going to be um, who they're going to back, whether it's going to be one of them or whether they're going to have to find another Prince Ali-type figure, maybe Prince Ali himself, uh, to back in the uh, in the FIFA presidential race. So um, a lot of the UEFA power brokers, I guess, will be in town anyway. This is the biggest UEFA event of 2015. Um, I don't know if their number is going to include John Delaney. Surely, surely a man as important as John Delaney, um, essentially the member of, a, of an equal partnership, uh, a partnership of equals with, John, with uh, Michel Platini, um, I see, as Delaney outlined to us last week, essentially he's the ideas man, and then Platini is the guy who kind of puts it into puts it into practice. You know, he he sort of um, he takes care of all the details. Uh, yeah, I tell Delaney Platini to- exactly. I tell Platini we need to expand this competition. Platini he goes and does the logistics, gets that competition expanded. He gets the competition expanded. You know, I, I suggest maybe we want to centralise the TV deals. Platini says. Why didn't I think of that? And then he goes and he goes and does it. So it's a bit like, um, I suppose, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Uh, maybe Delaney's kind of the Trey Parker figure, creating, providing the creative impetus. And Matt Stone sort of does all the office work and, um, you know, answers the phone and that sort of stuff. Matt Damon, Ben so, Affleck? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not I sure how that one actually works. The Matt Damon yeah. figure, probably yeah. the Matt Damon figure in that in that partnership as well. So you know, we've we've seen these great partnerships um, throughout history in various fields: uh, showbiz, entertainment, football administration, and uh, you know, I hope that John Delaney is in Berlin, um, and maybe he can share some of the ideas that he shared uh, with readers of the Star newspaper. Um, Delaney obviously has been has, has written a few articles, or at least his byline has appeared in a few articles uh, over the last week or so. And um, his one in the Star is uh, is a sensation. Um, uh, starts off saying Blatter was a, a lame duck president. Dozens of football associations, including the FAI and even the UK Prime Minister, had come out against it, which put the writing on the wall. Um, Obviously, something happened in the last 24 hours to push him to resign. More revelations may come out in coming days. So there you've got John Delaney reckons it wasn't just Sepp Blatter reflecting and then deciding, you know what, maybe the best thing for FIFA would be for me to step aside at this point. John Delaney reckons, obviously, something else is coming down the line that we're going to hear about. I firmly believe Blatter was the leader of a dictatorship, says Delaney. He was shameless. Uh, and this is him, his description of, this is John Delaney talking about Sepp Blatter, just so you know. He says, he hung on to power for as long as he could and surrounded himself with yes men. He believed he was invincible and had a sense of entitlement to his job. When he had the wind behind him, he thought it was a hurricane. There's something wrong when you hear allegations of FIFA officials handing out brown envelopes of cash on a Caribbean beach. The beautiful game had turned into a mafia movie before our eyes. Uh, so... That was John Delaney's description of Sepp Platter, uh, just, uh, just so, to get, so everybody is, is, is clear on that. Uh, he goes on to mention that, I crossed swords with Blatter back in 2009 when I felt he was disrespectful about a confidential off-the-cuff proposal to be admitted to the South African World Cup. This is, uh, they have asked for that, really. Uh, he says, I later forced him to apologize to me and my FAI colleagues after he went public with the proposal in a joking way. Anyway, it's important that the debate moves on. Um, so, uh, so yeah, he, he, he's looking forward to the, to the revolution, or at least a reform that's going to take place in FIFA over the next little while. It's he compares it to the IOC after Salt Lake City and right. reckons that, um, that uh, things are going to improve. At FIFA. Uh, yeah, it's important to move on right after I get this little final dig in on Bladder about the third. Bladder probably was disrespectful uh, at that point, I think, but uh, at, uh, I do remember Definitely feeling. Definitely was disrespectful, just as well John Delaney forced him to apologise. Yeah, well, that is true. I do remember feeling, yeah, this ridiculous suggestion is opening us up to ridicule. I just wasn't expecting the man to do most of ridicule being, ridiculing being the head of FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you expected he might leave it to the sort of media, the sarcastic media. Maybe the maybe that Australian guy has been having a few pops at Ireland in recent days. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's this Australian guy who was, who was talking about how we have a weed as our national emblem and we can't even grow potatoes and all this kind of stuff. Maybe he would, that type of person, but instead it was the FIFA president who, uh, who was laughing at us for uh, what was, in fairness, an incredibly stupid thing to, uh, to ask for. Chuck Blazer has been talking Ken well he's already he's, he did this talking a while back but it, uh, it's now been unsealed these court documents yeah the, so the court documents are unsealed you can go and um, read the full court proceeding it's, it's interesting enough I mean just the, the what they're doing is you know this is a, an indictment of Chuck Blazer they're reading out charges against him um, 
and the charges relate to various things. He's pleading guilty, um, and he's explaining that he was involved in a. Well, the judge, <laughs> the judge says, uh, you know, don't overreact as a lot of people do. But this is a, a RICO, a racketeering influenced corrupt organization, uh, which is exactly, um, you know, the sort of uh, description in American legalese that you would have of, you know, Tony Soprano's firm, uh, and this is what FIFA uh, was being described as. Um, and the charges uh, related to you know various bribes, kickbacks, and so on. And, and Blazer admitted uh, that he had been involved in this for for years. Um, re- re- mentioned the 1998 World Cup, mentioned the 2010 World Cup, uh, mentioned a bunch of other things. And there was an interesting. Um, I mean, the the exchange goes on. You know, from the very start, the judge it's it's literally a verbatim report of what happened in this in this court hearing. The first, the judge is all concerned about. You know, let's make sure where the room is clear and there's no one here, and are the doors locked, and is there anyone sneaking around outside, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then bring in Chuck Blazer, and then he talks to him quite sympathetically about his health issues, makes sure that he's feeling physically comfortable and isn't on any medication that could maybe leave him confused and unaware of um, uh, the precise nature of what was happening. Um, they then, the judge then says, he says a bunch of things, but at one point he says, it, it alleges a conspiracy to corrupt this enterprise, that's um, uh, FIFA and CONCACAF, through the anticipated payment of funds pursuant to various criminal schemes, reciting just a heading there, 1998 World Cup bribery scheme, referring to page 16, the Gold Cup bribery and kickback scheme. It involves a conspiracy to do these things, a conspiracy to use wire transfers to affect the payment of monies. Tell me. What your understanding of what a conspiracy is? What is a conspiracy? Chuck Blazer replies uh, that it is an activity conducted by a group of people for a specific aim and objective. The judge says, a specific what objective? And Blazer says, aim or objective. <laughs> and the judge says, that's a B plus. It's a specific criminal aim or objective. Okay? <laughs> Blazer <laughs> says, oh, that is corrected. Obviously, he didn't think to include the word criminal. Whether or not he, um, whether or not he ever thinks in those terms, I'm not so sure. You've got to be getting an A minus at, at the very least for that. But it was a good effort by Chuck Blazer to speak a bit of legalese. A good understanding of uh, exactly what it, he knew exactly what a conspiracy is. He just wasn't thinking about it in terms of a moral or legal dimension as well. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, Blazer is, is a pretty incredible character in some ways. I mean, he, the, the amazing thing about him, I think, when you look at this this little empire that he was running. Um, this empire of, of kickbacks and, and bribes is how lazy he got after a while. Just how slack he got in actually running uh, the the criminal enterprise. I mean, this is a guy who went for five years without filing any personal income tax returns. How did he think that was going to work out for him? I mean, how did how did he think that he was going to be able to just not file income tax returns for five years and not? end up having any problems as a result of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's amazing. It suggests to me, like, this is a guy who had completely given in to decadence, you know, literally was just too busy um, wheeling around Manhattan in his mobility scooter, having uh, dinner at all the most expensive restaurants in town to bother, to bother doing the bare minimum of paperwork that was going to be required to keep this criminal show on the road. I'm not he even sure how much he would have had to have done. I think, I think he could have he could have got some accountants involved there, Ken. He could have got some assistance. He might have had to, he might just have had to sign a few documents. He literally might have just had to hire someone. Listen, um, I know you know that you're you're a creative accountant. I've hired you because you're because I've heard uh, from uh, from friends that you are a creative man. 
confronted with uh, confronted with these these numbers, I'm 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 sure that you're able you're going to be able to tell a, a really nice story with these numbers. And uh, please, could you just take care of that? Because I understand I have to file income tax returns, and if um, and you see if I don't file income tax returns, I suppose eventually uh, the IRS might uh, knock on the door and wonder <laughs> just to check I'm okay. You know, we're just calling on you, uh, Mr. Blazer, just to check that you're okay because we haven't heard from you in a while. Um, it was, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it just goes to show, like, you're, you're talking about someone who's far from a criminal mastermind. You're talking about a guy who just literally can't believe his look and then almost immediately just gets lazy. Ah, oh, you know, this is, this is great. You know, I, I, obviously, I am Superman. The rules don't apply to me. And, uh, you know, I don't even have to try and cover up my criminal activity. It's incredible, incredible stuff. But he's not the only um, former uh, FIFA uh, big man who's had a lot to say in the last 24 hours or rather has been has, has had a lot of stuff released jack warner also is uh, has been on television and also speaking at a political rally in trinidad and tobago which is obviously where he's from he is a politician there uh, an important man in the community um said on tv that he fears for his life uh, says he won't keep secrets uh, for those who actively seek to destroy this country um, he's talking about this country. I mean, he's, he's talking about those who are actively seeking to destroy this country's hard-won international image. And, uh, you know, this, this, is the, this being the FBI and, and also one suspects people at FIFA who are trying to suggest that he was one of the prime drivers of this as opposed to just a man swept up, a good man swept up in a bad system. You know what I mean? He, he goes to a um, political rally after that uh, and he says... I apologize for not disclosing. Uh, having said that, he's he's basically made copies of all these documents, checks, uh, various uh, things relating to his personal corruption trail, and entrusted them to persons unknown, such that even if he's rubbed out personally, the truth will, will out uh, in the form of a, an avalanche. There was a tsunami before, but an avalanche now. Um, so essentially, he other people have this information, uh, and this information is going to come out. He says. Um, I apologize for not disclosing my knowledge of these events before. <laughs> uh, but not even death will stop the avalanche that is coming. The die is cast. There can be no turning back. Let the chips fall where they fall. He's a good man to issue these dark threats, Jack Warren. I believe he's done this before. But why oh, doesn't yeah. he just come out and say, here, this is, listen, I'll stop talking like I, I'm doing a narration for Lord of the Rings and yeah. I'll actually give you the details of what's happened. I, I think because he still hopes that if he's... Uh, threatening to release stuff on his side then people on the other side won't release stuff against him of i mean course, that's the only course, reason yeah. i guess and I, and I guess that's a forlorn hope but i think that jack warner has already uh, retreated to to essentially plan b or plan d or maybe it's you know plan h or something like that which is throw yourself upon the mercy of your people um uh which is to say uh, he's in trinidad i don't expect him to be let's say taking any holidays in miami anytime soon <laughs> And if you can prize Jack Warner from the bosom of his people, uh, well then, well then, well done to you. He's he's evidently uh, throwing himself, wrapping himself in the flag, and saying, you know, these people uh, are trying to do down this country, and you know who's with me, and hoping that he's still got enough friends left in Trinidad, or you know, I don't know, if friends is exactly the word, but you know what I mean, people who uh, people who'll still look out for Jack Warner to uh, to keep uh, any extradition requests at bay. You're there for the Champions League final, Ken, in Berlin, so we should probably talk about it. I have to, mm. have to be honest, I haven't thought much about it until this very moment because I've been too wrapped up in FIFA. Uh, what have we got to say about it? Hopefully hopefully one of us has been thinking about this game. 
Well, um, the bad news for the Champions League final is that it seems as though Giorgio Chiellini, uh, who is the Juventus defensive totem, might not be able to play. He's injured himself in training yesterday. He's injured his calf. Now, to be honest, I expect Chiellini to play. He's not the kind of man who misses the Champions League final just because of some, you know, his calf is, you know, has snapped off his, his ankle bone and it's, it's no longer, uh, you know, effectively he can't walk. I don't think he's the kind of guy who would miss a Champions League final over a trif- trifling issue like that. But uh, if he is injured, that doesn't bode well, uh, considering that he's going to be up against, you know, um, really the best, maybe the best front line, the, the best front line that we've seen in the in the Champions League era. I, 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 I hate using these um, kinds of uh, statistics, you know, post-1992, as though the rest of it didn't exist. But, you know, I have to say, oh, no, I, I never actually really got to see much of Di Stefano and Puskas. And I don't want to say that Suarez, Neymar and Messi are definitely better than those guys without really having, without being able to compare them. But I will say they're better than anything I've ever seen. Um, uh, the, you know, there's, there's just too many, uh, there's too many threats to deal with all at once. I mean, you've got Suarez with his, uh, obviously, Kalini and Suarez having their personal history too, and Suarez and Evra, um, which is, you know, another whole subplot to this. And it'd be interesting to see how Suarez reacts to the proximity of these guys. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> he's certainly in the wrong in terms of his dealings with both of them. And uh, I wonder, I wonder if it's going to affect his mood on the field. But you know, you've got Suarez, his ability um, with the ball up close to defenders, rolling past defenders, um, you know, able to beat them with little nutmegs, uh, and this kind of thing. His power and his kind of persistence in winning the ball back uh, from defenders close to the opponent's goal. You've got Lionel Messi uh, lurking a little bit further up the pitch uh, from the defenders, who essentially every time he gets the ball half of the Juventus team is going to have to try and stop him. I mean, half of the Atletico Bilbao team wasn't enough to stop him the other day. The way that he's playing at the moment is, you know, is literally unstoppable. And then once everybody's kind of converged around Messi uh, to try and, you know, prevent him doing what he did to Bilbao, uh, all he's got to do is chip the ball diagonally to Neymar. I mean, they've scored so many goals this way already. Neymar's the only man in this front three who isn't getting a lot of assists. He is a little bit selfish in front of goal. It's kind of like complaining about a snake uh, because it's it's poisonous, you know, that Neymar is, is selfish. He's a little bit selfish, it has to be said, but he's given them a real sort of cutting edge in behind. Um, any defense that wants to kind of get close to Messi and Suarez risks um, being, um, risks Neymar essentially getting in, in around the back. Uh, he scored a lot of goals for Barcelona um, since the turn of the year, just like that. And really, when you take the three of them together and the, the, the kind of combined threats that they offer, it's very difficult to see um, how to kind of stop this team. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens. I must say, though, that Juventus do look strong in midfield. Um, you know, there's Andre Pirlo there. This is his fourth Champions League final. He's won uh, two out of the previous three. Obviously, he's... 36 now, and when he came up against some of these guys in the 2012 um, Euros final, he, you know, was was pretty much overrun. Um, but you know, in the 2012 Euro final, he wasn't playing alongside guys like Arturo Vidal and Paul Pogba, um, who I think are, you know, capable of of causing those Barcelona players some problems. I mean, the Barcelona midfield is Busquets, Iniesta, and Rakitic. It's been playing brilliantly. Nobody can stop them passing the ball around. But Pogba and Vidal are certainly physically stronger, more athletic than those guys. And if they can get close to them, 
then you never know. Maybe they're going to be able to, to, to shake them up a little bit. They've got Tevez as well. I mean, I, I keep thinking back to the 2011 Champions League final, the Manchester United-Barcelona one. Uh, and Alex Ferguson decided that the way to approach that was to attack Barcelona, to press them, um, to press them in their own half, to try and knock them out of their rhythm. It didn't work. It really didn't work. Barcelona were too good on the day. Um, but one of the reasons that it didn't work and one of the things that Ferguson was annoyed about was Wayne Rooney's um, failure to fulfill the role that Ferguson had in mind for him, which was essentially, you're obviously, you're obviously our centre forward, but really what you have to do is be on Busquets. And every time Busquets is getting the ball, I want you to be there kicking him in the back and trying to get the ball. And Rooney just didn't really do that. He did it for like a few minutes, and then after that, he kind of stopped. And every time Busquets had the ball, he had loads of time. Carlos Tevez is not going to let Busquets have time. At least while Car well, Carlos Tevez still has the energy to move around the field, he will not be giving Busquets any time in the ball. I mean, you just wonder if Tevez maybe is going to pay at some point for all of those training sessions in which apparently he <laughs> basically has been slacking off. I mean, he does 90% of his physical exercise in actual competitive football matches, according to the few guys who have, who have played with him. Um, so maybe his stamina isn't what it once was, but his desire is there. Maybe Tevez is the kind of guy who can help that, those midfielders to unsettle Barcelona. I'm sure that Juventus are not going to try and attack as Manchester United did. They're a bit more realistic. It's not really their way. They'll try and not concede and help to score in the counter-attack. Maybe they can do it, but I'm not going to be like back to do it. We're going to talk a little more Champions League with Dion in a few minutes' time, but you want to talk Rafa? Well, yeah, poor old Rafael Benitez apparently is, uh, has been welcomed to his job by only 8% of uh, Real Madrid supporters that are happy with his appointment. Um, and he's had to immediately face criticism of his style, even though he hasn't actually managed Real Madrid in any games yet. Um, so what he's saying essentially is that he has no... Uh, he has no real thoughts about style. Uh, he says, it's not about what system you play, it's just about winning. The only thing that counts at this club is coming first. Second isn't good enough. And this is true. I think I think Benitez at least understands what Real Madrid are all about. They don't care how they win. The only thing that matters to them is whether or not they win. If they were to win, you know, all their matches 1-0 next season and win the treble, okay, they might actually sack Rafael Benitez for that. <laughs> but I think I think in general terms... Uh, in general terms, winning is what matters to them, and the style is something which they, they can boast about if they win. It doesn't matter how they... It, once they win, they can boast about whatever style it is that they used. Um, tactics are important, says Rafa, but it's more important players play well and attempt to win. Um, you know, I think with Benitez, uh, people remember... At Real Madrid, they remember him for... When he was at well, when he's at Valencia, I suppose, but when he was at Liverpool, certainly he had this argument with, uh, or it wasn't really an argument. He was criticised by Jorge Valdano, Jorge Valdano, who commented on a game between Benitez's Liverpool and and um, Jose Mourinho's Chelsea in 2007, and said um, uh, came up with the phrase "shit on a stick." Mm. Um, uh, he said. Uh, you know, he was he was talking about what a great stadium Anfield is and how excited everybody gets about the game. Uh, I put a shit hanging from a stick in the middle of this passionate, crazy stadium, and there are people who will tell you it's a work of art. It's not. It's shit hanging from a stick. So that was um, he wasn't directly comparing the football that they played to that, but he was saying, you know, don't give me this. Oh, Chelsea and Liverpool represent the best in in football today because football is is not about football is more than this. Um, this is 
this is unimaginative. Essentially, he was saying this is just uh, re- you know hardworking football uh, players stifled by tactics. Uh, and so on and so forth. But actually, football this should be about imagination, intuition. Now, you can put basically any game in a stadium which is reacting as Anfield would, would, you know, people say, wow, what a great game. It's not. It's the stadium that makes you think that this is actually terrible. Um, as for Benitez, uh, I think his, his response to Valdana was something in the lines of, yeah, you know, uh, he's one of the guys that's been causing problems at Real Madrid all these years. He's why they don't win anything anymore. <laughs> you know, um, but, it, you know, I suppose Rafa Benitez at least shows that he understands the stakes. Win and maybe you get another season, lose, and it's goodbye. Martin Skirtle, quick word. Yeah, well, uh, Liverpool are, are building for next season. Uh, we had the news that Brendan Rodgers um, has so far been uh, received the backing of uh, FSG, uh, the owners of Liverpool. Uh, who reckon who've accepted his his uh, reasoning for why the season went very badly and are prepared to give him another crack? Uh, he's got James Milner, uh, who's confirmed that he's going to be signing from Manchester City. Uh, Milner, who who is a player who I guess would improve the players at um, Rogers' disposal, if not maybe the kind of player who's necessarily going to make up a big gap to the teams above them. But at the moment, it looks as though they might be um, having a few problems with one of their key defenders, Not which is not to say that Martin Skirtle is necessarily um, the kind of defender you want to hang on to at all costs. Uh, he, you know, over the last few years, he's consistently been there at the heart of Liverpool defences, which have failed, uh, although he has been the best of a bad bunch, you could say. Uh, they've essentially offered him a contract which we don't know the terms of, apart from that Skirtle says, it's unacceptable. I think contracts like this are offered to players who are much older than me or players who have had health problems. It's, it's unacceptable, so I didn't sign it. I have one year left, and there's been some speculation about the interest from other clubs. We'll see what happens. So uh, just as uh, Rodgers is, uh, is beefing up some parts of his team, it looks as though uh, maybe other bits of it are, are, are preparing to fall off. That's it for Ken Early's Report on Sport.
It was a phenomenal kind of uh, idea that we could we could beat England. Wow! But it was not there was nothing nationalist about it. That's the point I'd be making. It was just a sporting thing. Giles, John would have grown up with that idea, you know, for example, and he was a great sort of folk hero in his when John was young, you know, when he was about 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him, you know. Yeah. But it, it was a kind of classic Irish street footballer. It was a street game here, you know. Oh, listen to that crowd roar. Ireland have scored after three minutes. Mixture, the scorer, leading 1-0. And the crowd has gone mad here. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get into the Ireland-England game. Couldn't, because it was a lift over the style job, and I couldn't get one that day. So, leg it back to the house and listen to the radio. And what we needed that day was to beat England, and we qualified for the World Cup. Um, and we were 1-0 up. Flags, all over the ground. It was just extraordinary. Uh, and with, in, the, in the last minute, Tom Finney got the ball. He went down the right wing, crossed the ball, and a fellow called John Atheo, who played for Bristol City, scored. It was just the most extraordinary thing. Philip Green didn't know what to say. There was no applause in the ground. And I was sitting there crying. We were just dead. Last minute, England, again. It's like, whew, that was a deep, deep, deep shock to uh, everybody. <laughs> we, we didn't get over it for weeks. Uh, it was terrible. I mean, it's like, that's why I think football and sport in general, but soccer, all, all sport, of course. But the effect it has on kids when their team loses is deep. The score is a draw. Ireland won, England won, and so England have qualified for the World Cup Series. Ireland beaten just in the last second of extra time, of overtime. All right, let's focus on Ireland against England at the weekend. The Suns' Martin Lipton is on the line. Martin, the, there was an article by Barney Roney in The Guardian recently uh, in which he described this fixture as pointless and a mistake, suggesting that England away fans might delight in provocative chanting and all that kind of thing and set back relations between the, between the teams, between the countries. Are you at all concerned about this? Do you think Barney Roney has a point? Well, I'll be a slightly concerned, but it's also a financial deal. It's sort of reciprocal for the game of Wembley... Uh a few, you know, a couple of seasons ago, so we're due to go there. I think also it's time to bury the memory of the last visit to Dublin, uh, which was a truly grim night for English football uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I'm not talking about um, Matt Letitia not playing very well. Um, you know, it was a horrible, horrible occasion, and that that wound needs needs to be cauterised. And playing a game in Dublin and urging the supporters to actually properly behave and hopefully they respond to that, is exactly what, what is required. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree with that, Martin, because ultimately 
the teams will have to play each other again. It used to be that we, for a few years there, we play, we seem to draw each other in all the major tournaments, but it's likely that we'll play each other again in a qualifier in Dublin at some point. So why not try this out in a friendly, make sure everything's okay? The only fear being that if anything does go wrong, then that, that, that just sets things back. Yeah, that is it. But I mean, the, the, obviously the precaution of playing it at 1pm uh, is, is sensible in that respect. You know, play it at a time when, when people can't have been drinking um, all, all, all day. I mean, they may well have been drinking all night and not, not gone to bed, but that's another issue which you can't get around. But um, I think it's, it's important, actually, that we start to sort of try to renew and, and normalise footballing relationships between the two, the two countries. There are some idiots out there on both sides, majority of them, I would say, on the English side. Uh, I've been a vociferous opponent of these ridiculous, inane and pointless chants. We all know what we're talking about. Uh, and I will continue to point them out and, and, to, um, and to denigrate those who, who go through it. But also, at some point, you've got to try and see if people have grown up. Yeah. I mean, I've seen England fans at a lot of international tournaments, Martin. I've got to say that, um, you know, having originally uh, had, had a bit of trepidation about this, having, having grown up watching the 80s and 90s, um, you know, the violence and so on, um, that really I've never never seen any kind of... Ser- I mean, I've seen lots of England fans chanting no surrender to the IRA, but it sh- sort of just seems like something they sing uh, as opposed to something they're really thinking about. <laughs> I mean, for instance, uh, Barney Roney mentions in this uh, piece that there's been a degree of renewed toxic intensity among those who follow England abroad. Do you pick that up? Is that something which has maybe started to happen in the last couple of years? Because the England fans I've seen at international tournaments have generally been a fairly um, normal kind of bunch of uh, boozed up football fans. Yeah, there was no problem in Brazil, but there were problems on the road to Brazil. I was uh, at a game in, uh, in San Marino where there were the, the chants about Anton Ferdinand and, uh, and his brother. Uh, which were clearly, you know, referring to the lynch, lynch mob mentality of, of the American Deep South. There's no, you know, that was the illusion there. Um, there have been these continued sort of ludicrous chants. I mean, of course, if you were to take that view of, of the world, which I don't, it's a bit late because we did, if you know what I mean, given that Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness are now part of the government of Northern Ireland. Um, you know, that is a battle that's been lost. It's a ludicrous vestigial creed occur from people who have no concept of actually the way the world has moved on. Unfortunately, uh, they do still exist, and we have to, um, have to, ca- to, to, to co- combat it, really. I know the FA accept that there's an issue there. They are trying to so do. Uh, I think that sometimes we've got to... I think the, the dark days have gone, but there are still elements who are unpleasant at best and pretty depressingly um, uh, nasty at worst. What about the English team itself? Uh, I don't think they'll be singing that. No, no I don't think they'll be singing it, no. <laughs> and there doesn't seem to be even much of a spark there. They just, it's, it all seems a bit becalmed at the moment. You know, the year since the World Cup has slid by. Roy Hodgson is still there, still doing a f- an okay job, as he'll probably continue to do. I, I what, think, what, what do you think about I it's think gone? seven wins out of eight is more than an okay job, to be fair. Yeah, but... Since you, the World Cup. Well, you, can only beat, let's say, you can only beat the teams you play, and they've beaten everyone. They've won every game apart from a draw in Italy. Uh, you may dismiss that, but let's be honest, it's a fact. Um, Germany have, have lost games in qualifying. Holland have lost games in qualifying. England have won every game in qualifying. I mean, I, and he's refreshed and renewed the team. Well, while you can... Without question, Roy was lucky to keep his job and he kept his job for want of an English alternative. 
But he couldn't have done more since the World Cup to justify the fact that he did keep his job. Yeah. I suppose England's, England's record in qualifiers over the last 10 years or so has been amazing. They must be one of the best uh, countries in the world um, at qualifiers. Uh, it's the tournaments where the problem is. But it's when they play real teams that the problems are. I can't, but you can't, you can't change that until you actually go to the tournament and play a real team. And I will point out, people seem to forget this, England won their group in Euro 2012. They were top of a group, including France, Ukraine um, and Sweden. It, it, whether or not, oh, well, they were. They got seven points. You know, they won the group. It wasn't that mm. bad. The World Cup, and the World Cup, as I, I always say, they went home because they weren't good enough in the World Cup. I was far more depressed by their showing in the 2010 World Cup when they qualified from the group than I was in 2014 when they played the right way but had such a horrendous lack of defensive ability. There wasn't a yeah. defender in the team at all. Um, and, that's not, and the manager can't change that because the one defender he had wasn't available for selection in John Terry. Whether or not you think John Terry should be in, in the England team or not, he can't play for them. They had a team which was always going to be vulnerable and he went for the, right, well, we're going to concede two, let's try and score three approach. And they mm. could have scored three in those two games. They just didn't take their chances. The other team did. They went home. They weren't as poor as they were in, in 2010 when they qualified. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're talking about 2014 now again in this, in this quite, um, you know, philosophical tone. <laughs> that was the amazing thing about the whole 2014 World Cup was that England were so terrible or the performance in the end was so abysmal. I mean, if you look at the well, results, the worst, the, um, the worst they've, they've ever been in a World Cup, I think. Yeah, but every, everybody sorry, was Mark, just so accepting it. of it. Everybody was kind of like, well, you know, and it was just so un-England. I, I was thinking, where's the anger? Where's the consternation? Every, why, why, why is everybody just accepting now that England are, are mediocre? They don't, English people just don't seem to be able to get excited about their national team anymore. Well, because we're being realistic, perhaps. We're always accused of being hyperbolically over-positive over, um, and, and trying to see things that aren't there. So when we see things that are there, we then get criticised for being realistic. I mean, you can't win, really, can you? Um, it was just the truth. We didn't have any decent defenders because there weren't any decent defenders. And there still aren't, to be fair, too many decent defenders. The fact is, you know, the team that, that will play in, in Dublin is... is pretty different to the one that w w went to the World Cup. And that's not far away from our first choice team now. You know, we've climbed it right back with, um, would have been sure perhaps, with Gibbs or, or, whom, or whomever at left back, still with Hart in goal, with no Gerrard, no Lampard. Uh, you know, it's a very different England. Uh, and it was moving that way anyhow. We've got, you know, the emergence of Sterling, who was just a kid at the World Cup. The emergence of Barkley, who's gone a little bit backwards. But Kane, who won't be there, but is clearly a player for the future. Um, we're doing it without Sturridge because he's injured. So we'll see who else. You know, Austin's done great this season. He deserves his run. Rooney has been fantastic since the World Cup. No question, he's been brilliant. He's led by by precept and example. He's been terrific. It's it's what it is. Is there room for Jack Grealish in that team, Martin? Oh, unquestionably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not not on the performance he's even the cap final, mind. But in the player he's going to be in two years' time. Yeah. I really like the fact his energy and and desire. And he's pretty clear that he's going to commit to England, as I suspected all along. Do you along think so? Now. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is one battle that Ireland aren't going to win. Is that what you're saying? Well, it looks, look, whilst he's eligible for both countries, talk to him. He's English. Talk to his father. He's English. He's English who has the right to play for Ireland. And if he chooses to play for Ireland, that's perfectly fine. It's his choice. 
he's going to choose to play for England. All right. Do you think, Martin, um, that if he, <laughs> in the incredibly, uh, in- increasingly, I should say, unlikely event that he does decide to declare for Ireland at senior level, that uh, he might end up paying for that decision when he when he's playing with Aston Villa at stadiums up and down the country? No. I mean, anyone really cares too much. He might do for about a week, two weeks, and then it gets forgotten. I mean, hell's teeth, there's enough English qualified players who played for other countries. There's enough people who qualified for other countries who played for England. You know, Danny Welbeck and Raheem Sterling being two prime examples who could easily have played for uh, Ghana or Jamaica, respectively. Um, it's happened over the years, hasn't it? Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't bother me. British has got the right to make his own decision. I don't mind what decision he takes, but once he makes the next decision, it's immutable. He can't, he can't transfer it again. You can transfer allegiance at junior level. Once you get to senior level, that's it, done and dusted, and people like it or lump it have got to get on with it. Um, I think he's a strong enough boy to cope with any with a little bit of early stick. It'll get forgotten because hopefully people have grown up. Enjoy the weekend's football, Martin. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Mill. No trouble. Take care. What do you think, Ken? Do you reckon Grealish would be booed up and down English grounds if he were to shock Martin Lipton and end up declaring for Ireland? Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, obviously that uh, was the experience of Aidan McGeady and James McCarthy at certain stadiums they went to in Scotland. But again, in Scotland, there's a whole extra layer there of um, sectarianism, which I don't really think is the case um, throughout the vast majority of England. Um, and he was playing for McGeady even without the sectarianism element which obviously was a large part of it he was also playing for one of the superpowers of the country uh, who other teams are already looking for reasons to probably despise a lot of their players whereas I wouldn't describe Aston Villa as being quite in that bracket at the moment not not really not at the moment um, although <laughs> I don't know I mean if you're if you're sitting there and there's not much going on in the game maybe uh, maybe Jack Grealish uh, Happy Shamrock, Jack Grealish would present himself as something to uh, sort of uh, have a bit of a chant about. Although, you know, to be honest, Owen, uh, it's incredibly unlikely that this is um, this is going to happen. Um, I think Grealish will be uh, will be probably one of the young lions of the next generation of English football. And and good luck to the young man. Dion Fanning is good to go in the Champions League final. Although Dion, I should say, UEFA's showpiece has been somewhat overshadowed by everything happening at FIFA over the last week or so. Who Can I ask you, who's your favourite evil genius figure? Are you a Chuck Blazer man or a Jack Warner kind of guy? Well, I suppose they all, they, they appeal to uh, different parts of, of, of everyone, I think, depending on what kind of evil genius you, uh, you like. You know, I read uh, Chuck Warner's, um, or Chuck Blazer's uh, uh, appearance in court, you know, the, 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 the judge checking that there was no one lurking out before he's kind of ushered into the room. And then, and then here comes Chuck Blazer to, uh, to you know, spill the beans about, about everybody. Um, whereas as Warner, Warner's, uh, Warner's threats are kind of of a, of a different magnitude and you kind of wonder, you know, what, what, what he's going to follow it up with and, and what exactly, you know, where, where he's going to go to go to from here. The Blazer uh, one is interesting in terms of the fact that he says uh, he accepted some bribes in relation to the 1998 World Cup. Um, the interesting thing about that is that uh, Michel Platini was um, the chief of the France bid for the 1998 World Cup and the head of their organizing committee. It obviously doesn't say that Michel Platini uh, or the French bid paid any bribes uh, to Chuck Blazer and you know other people like him. Although, if uh, they didn't, you wonder how they ended up getting the uh, competition, given that at least somebody involved in that bid process obviously did. Yeah, well, 
Um, I think the thing, and you know, everybody keeps turning to to eighteen and twenty two and saying this is this is uh, you know it's getting closer and closer. Um, you know, the interesting thing now is just that every process is 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 corrupted. You know, it's like. Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, it's like the 100 meter final in, in the in, in, in 1988 or something like that. You know, it's like everything, everything is, everyone is, uh, you know, un, under a shadow. And has anything been done uh, legitimately? And I don't think you can say that at that stage that anything going back, this is the way it seems to be. If Blazer's testimony is, is correct, this is the way everything is, has been done um, and was always done and was done until... Uh, you know, it seems to be, you know, nobody's, why, why should we change this? What do you think, Dion, of the way in which the, some of the European um, association heads have been reacting to the demise of Sepp Blatter? Uh, Greg Dyke, I saw, um, was, was uh, sort of uh, talking quite big about the Qatari uh, prospects and said he wouldn't be sleeping easy if, if he was in Qatar. Um, John Delaney uh, has been talking about the Africans and Asians and how they... Uh, uh, really need to look to UEFA as a model of good governance and, and how to do things. Do you think um, that the likes of Greg Dyke and, and John Delaney are going to succeed in, in, in uh, leading the world on this issue? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think, uh, I, I, I don't think the problem with FIFA necessarily is that they've, they've, made, they've given more power to associations and, feder and confederations around the world and it hasn't been centred in... in UEFA. I don't think that's the uh, that's the problem. The problem is what's happened with with money when it's when it's been when when it's been dispersed. And I don't think there's going to be much appetite uh, around the world for a centralisation of, of of football toward you know and, and bringing it towards UEFA, um, which is clearly you know the the you know I I don't know who Greg Dyke is 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 going to back, but I imagine uh, John Delaney will be um, you know he's already talked about how he can get things done at UEFA. They listen to him, and you know the, the uh, you know anyone any you know, the implication mean anyone who listens to John Delaney is doing things the right way. Um, I don't think uh, people in the rest of the in the rest of the world will want that, and they know they'll know what that's what FIFA used to look like. This is this is the big problem, is, and when they when they as they approach kind of remodeling FIFA uh, around the world, they don't want FIFA to look like what it looked like before 1974. Dion, just uh, we'll get to the Champions League final at this stage because uh, well, it's an interesting one. Barcelona five months ago were looked like they were in crisis. The coach seemed to be a bit of a non-entity at that stage. There were the issues around Messi. The signings hadn't had a chance to gel at that stage. Now they've won almost all their games uh, in 2015. They've won the double. They could be the first club to do the European treble twice. Is this the best Barcelona team in recent years? This is something that, that we've debated on this show and Gary Neville and Graham Hunter were debating it a few years ago. Is this better than the teams of 2009, 2011? I, I, I still would think the first uh, Guardiola team was, was uh, a, a more complete team. And you know, the, the, other, the other thing is at this point, uh, Barcelona haven't, you know, you know, everyone expects them to win on Saturday, but they haven't won the Champions League yet. Uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they are a, a thrilling team and they're probably... When when Pep kind of became you know kind of lost in sort of self absorption uh, you know this kind of pursuit of of sort of the you know the the, the perfect uh, perfect football team of of uh, you know of of eleven midfielders essentially uh, you know they they became you know there there was there was there was a kind of beauty in it but it was a pretty kind of austere beauty whereas now there there is the the thrills you know of of the front three and also the fact that you kind of think 
they they are they are vulnerable. Um, but as I said, I think I would still favour the first Pep side, and then if 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 Barcelona win on Saturday, maybe you shouldn't be putting everything down to you know what happens in one game. But uh, I think that they need to do that first. The whole idea of a team of eleven midfielders um, seems. Uh, Frankly, a little bit boring compared to what uh, Barcelona are, are doing now. I mean, maybe maybe you can dominate the game more. Maybe you know you can have more of the ball, and, and maybe it's more uh, depressing for your opponent to play against a team that never gives them the ball, never gives them uh, any air. Is the kind of language that Guardiola would often use. But um, I, I'm sure I'm not the only spectator who'd rather watch guys like Neymar, Suarez, and Messi doing whatever uh, comes into their heads. And. Um. You know, you're going to keep the ball a lot if you if you have Xavi uh, at his peak doing what he did because that's that was he, he was better than uh, you know most players most midfielders in history at doing that. So that they they that was you know I think I think Pep took it took it from there uh, and it is it is a, it is a more exciting team than than you know as as I said as Pep kind of got lost into that that pursuit. I think possibly to kind of stimulate himself as well while everyone else was finding it kind of boring. Uh, Pep seemed to find this pursuit kind of essential to his own um, to keep going to keep his own interests alive to kind of find different ways of uh, dominating the ball entirely and not letting it you know and and, and suffocating games like that. Um, I don't know how he would have how he would have found this team, which was kind of you know was built on a sort of different model, not just with the three forwards, but that kind of you know pursuit of players. That you know, very fit into the Barcelona model and letting the players themselves, like someone like Suarez, shape how the team plays, rather than uh, saying that this is this is you know again this is how we're going to play and the players will fit into that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Suarez there as the the driver in some ways of how the team is shaped. Obviously, Messi is the main man there, but how much of Messi's resurgence this year and his return to the status of top player in the world do you put down to Luis Suarez's? obvious ability it seems to bring out the best in players around him he seems to be able to make reasonably good players look very good and very very good players look even better yeah i think i think it's a it's um well you know, see thing i always feel with uh messi that you you'll never it's 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 People have you know since they that defeat and and the run Barcelona have gone on since then everyone is attributing certain things you know this is the reason for this that is the reason for it and but Messi I'm not sure you will ever know because uh, he is that kind of person where you you don't really know what's going on despite you know what what he's doing on the pitch and I think Suarez has played Suarez you know his ability to do that with 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 players and with teams is exceptional I think it's it's not just what he does on the pitch, it's what he does in, in training, it's his, his desire to win. I think, you know, Philip Coutinho said that when he was at Liverpool, that, you know, everything about him, you just kind of missed it when he uh, wasn't there because he was uh, he was so, you know, hunger is a, <laughs> it is a cliche, but it's a, it's something beyond that. It's a kind of, it's a sort of contagious sort of drive he has that, that kind of spreads around the team. And if that brought Messi back to where he he he, he uh, then Suarez deserves some credit for it. I'm just not sure with Messi what changed, what he decided, what he decided had to change. If you look at the Messi of the of the year and a half before that, um, like what happened to him that he decided that now he now he he was going to change. If it was Suarez, if it was Luis Enrique, or if it was just something inside Messi. 
We haven't uh, actually mentioned the opponent at all, Juventus. They can, they will also win the treble if they win this game. They become the eighth club, I think, to do that. Um, are they, do you think, are we right to have completely ignored Juventus to assume that they're there as the cannon fodder uh, for this Barcelona team? Do you see, um, you know, any realistic likelihood? I'm not, I mean, obviously any football match can be won by either of the teams involved, but is there any realistic chance of, of Juventus uh, coming out of this one on top? Uh, no, not really. I think you know you would suspect the uh, the uh, Barcelona defence of being a, a bit vulnerable, but I'm not so sure. Like Chiellini is talking about how they won't allow Messi the room that that he he's got. You know, he's talking about the goal in the Copa del Rey, and this won't happen with Juventus. Uh, I, I I you know I I think he's he's playing on the old. You know, we know we know that it's become a cliche now when people talk about Italian defence. It's not really. Uh, the case anymore that that's how Italian football is is governed. I think this season there were more goals scored in in Serie A than in any of the other top five leagues. So it's it's not it's an it's an open league, and I think you know the Barcelona front line will will get more will expose expose them more than Juventus will be able to expose Barcelona. All right, Dion, brilliant stuff. Enjoy the game. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. One interesting point we didn't get to. There, Ken. I know you were you, well, you were interested in talking about was just the fact that the little pocket of South America that quite a few of these players come from, in particular Tevez, Suarez, Messi. Uh, they're all from a fairly small radius within the over or spanning a, a couple of countries, and here they are representing the biggest game in world football. Yeah, I mean Tevez and Suarez are, are from the kind of the. Uh let's say, men of the river plate. Uh, Messi is from Rosario, which is a little bit inland. But um, And Neymar, I suppose, is from Santos, which is not too far up the coast. Uh, I don't really know what it is about this part of the world um, that causes, uh, that, that means it consistently produces generation after generation the best strikers in the world. Um, I suppose Suarez had a bit of an explanation or tried an explanation for it in his autobiography where he was essentially saying... A lot of things which um, <laughs> I remember reading and thinking, well, this is interesting because what he's saying is that baby football, which is the kind of the small-sided games they play in Uruguay, mm-hmm. um, is actually incredibly uh, competitive and violent. And this is the same the, the same thing kind of goes for across the river in, in Buenos Aires. It's really violent, really nasty, and really competitive from a really early age. Um, at the, at, in Europe, it seems that the thinking is generally, oh, it should be about fun. You know, until these kids get to, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, we don't want them even thinking about the results. They should be out there just trying to enjoy themselves and express themselves. Whereas in, uh, well, certainly according to Luis Suarez, uh, from a very early age, it was all about uh, winning. The and crap you, out of each other. <laughs> you did whatever, you did whatever it took. Although then again, this is Luis Suarez speaking. You know, he, he does have a particular view of things. He does seem to be one of the more ruthless operators out there. Um, and to be fair, I suppose it's not as though Uruguay, it's, although Uruguay's produced a couple of pretty handy strikers, you know, before Suarez, Froland and, and uh, Zamorano. Zamorano, of course, is Chilean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, uh, good autocorrect there, Ken. <laughs> Zamorano. Ken's brain, in, um, in-brain autocorrect there just pops in and sorts out that little mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, look, uh, you know, maybe I should stop talking because the more I talk, the more rubbish comes out no, of my No, it's okay. I'm just picturing Luis Suarez in this in these games of baby football over in Uruguay. Everybody else, not even counting the score, 
just obeying orders to enjoy the game and Suarez going around just destroying people. And All the parents us. on the sidelines screaming obscenities and uh, threatening the referee with violence. <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of environment uh, which obviously everybody's trying to discourage in youth football uh, in Ireland uh, and throughout Europe at the moment. Uh, but apparently... Uh, still seems to be getting results in the uh, in the River Plate. I'm going to ask for a whole bunch of predictions here, Ken. Yeah. Champions League winner. Did you see that Barcelona. One? All right. The Champions League man of the match. Well, Suarez. I'm uh, I'm going to say um, I'm going to say Lionel Messi. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, is this the most boring? I mean, this is this, these are literally the answers David Cameron would give you if he was on <laughs> the other end. You know, I think Barcelona. I, I fancy Lionel Messi to to have a good game. Um, no, that sounds good if, enough. England against Ireland. England against Ireland, Ireland, Ireland draw. Draw. And will there be any crowd trouble, or will it pass off peacefully and be another another example of both nations increasing maturity in uh, Anglo-Irish relations? I don't think there'll be crowd trouble. I'm sure there will be. Um, chanting about the IRA, no surrender to the IRA, or the more recent one that they were showcasing at Celtic Park. I'm sure that will happen. Does anybody even really care? I mean, to me, it, it, to me, what that is, is less the expression of, of a really deeply held resentment and more a kind of a trolling type of a thing. You know, it's more, oh, you know, this is the kind of thing. These guys don't like this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, you know, I, I mean, most of the people who are seeing it probably can't even remember when the IRA was an active entity. Um, I'm sure that it will happen, and I'm not sure that it's going to be a big deal. All right, we've got another show out today, and that will feature a good chat with David Gillick. If you have any interest in all, interest in all today in doping and sport, doping and athletics in particular, we looked for a bit of reaction from David on the Panorama documentary that was uh, that came out last night detailing allegations uh, about a few people, but probably most notably Alberto Salazar, the top coach in the US, one of the world's top coaches. He's involved with uh, Mo Farah, uh, amongst others. David Gillick, very strong uh, on all of that. So have a listen. In the meantime, thanks for tuning into this one. You don't really tune into a podcast, but you know what I mean. Thanks, Ken, in Berlin. Enjoy the game. Thanks, Alan. I hope you enjoy the game too. And thanks for listening. You can check out irishtimes.com forward slash second captains for any of our previous shows. Take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.